It's time for another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. I am your host, Mitch Michaels, and today's show is going to be very, very special. George Pinozian is going to stop by talk tennis. The season is finally wrapped up there with Andy Murray clinching number one and Argentina winning the Davis Cup. We'll get into that as well as a little fantasy football talk that you're not going to want to miss, especially if you know either of us at all. And then Eric Roberts is going to come on the show and talk the NHL season. We've played a quarter, over a quarter of the games. We'll talk about the scoring leaders, some hot teams, some teams in trouble, what the Kings have been able to do being the hottest team in the NHL without Jonathan Quick. We will get into all that and much more. It's the Money Mitch Effect. It's Wednesday, hump day, November 30th. Let's get to it. All right, joining the show, back again, back from the dead, it's George Pinozian on the Money Mitch Effect. The Gambler. The Gambler, my life coach, the pride of Valencia, and the fantasy guru. And the fantasy guru, George Pinozian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again, Mitch. A lot to get into. I'll save some of the good stuff for the end. But George, we finally made it, the tennis season is over, and it flew right by, and that's me being uh, ridiculous because it's a ten and a half month season, but tennis season yeah. that started in January has ended, officially done, we're in the books until 2017, a lot to recap there, and we'll start with the end of the ATP Tour, George, Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic met in the finals, the World Tour finals, and it was Andy Murray that came out on top. The match was for number one, Murray got the job done in straight sets, he ends the year for the first time in his career winning the tournament and finishing at number one. George, we've been following Murray for basically his whole career. Put this into perspective, though, what's this mean that he's finally gotten to the top of the mountain? At 29 years old, he's the number one player in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge for him. You know, it took probably longer than expected for him, you know, at 29. But uh, I'm happy for him and for his family. You know, it's a big moment in his career to finally get to the top and I know it's something he's been kind of working on for a few years, and Djokovic kind of went through it when the dollar Federer were kind of at the top of the game, and Djokovic was always that number three guy. But now, you know, Murray's kind of been the number two, number two, number three for, for quite a long time. So for him to finally climb all the way to the top of the mountain and kind of be there now, I'm, I'm happy for him because he's a good player and he, he works hard and he deserves it. So I'm kind of looking forward to see how how he acts now as the world number one starting for next year and and how he kind of carries himself going forward. Yeah, think about how tough that must be, George, to be so good at tennis, one of the best in the world, and to be at two, at three for the last couple of years, which is where Murray's been. I mean, most people, I think yeah. most athletes in that situation might not be able to handle the mental stress of being that good but not being at the top, being so close but not getting there. So that was the thing that impressed me the most. You mentioned uh, his work ethic, and I think that's what guided him to this title because he's a guy we know that fights for everything, that fights for every point. And that semifinal match before the final against Milos Ranić was a war. And for him to win that oh, yeah. and go on and win the finals, it was amazing. And I knew he had a chance when, you know, when it was Murray when he said he was you know, still gearing up for number one. And... When you told me to bet all my money on Djokovic the day of the final, I thought that was a good sign for Andy Murray. <laughs> you know what, but then I kind of changed my mind after I saw that Murray was like almost a 2-1 to uh, underdog. So I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, I thought he had a chance. I didn't think he was completely out of it. But, yeah, I mean, Djokovic kind of let me down a little bit in, the, in that final. And I definitely thought he was going to give a better performance. He had a lot of unforced errors, I thought, uh-huh. but... Claude Murray for, for a good victory. Is there anybody else, though, seriously, that if they played a three-hour match, you'd be more confident the next day at this stage in their career than Andy Murray? I mean, right now, I, don't, I can't think of anyone I feel more at confident. This stage, no, absolutely not. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone that has the versatility and the endurance that Murray, Murray has. So, so impressive after that three-and-a-half-hour-long match versus Raonic, but crazy. He finishes the year... George, 78-9 is his overall record, and he wins a major, Has uh, adds another one of the collection, finishes at number one. What can we expect from Murray, not just next year, but 
for however long his career lasts. What can we look forward to now, Murray, getting to number one in the world? I think mentally it'll be a good advantage for him in most of his matches for next year. You know, he, he needs to kind of get used to being number one. I hope that, you know, it's not only for a short period of time. And at the same time, I'm excited to see how Djokovic bounces back. You know, like you said, a ten-and-a-half-month-long ten tennis season. So, you know, it's definitely very long and, and grueling for, for these athletes. But, yeah, so I think Murray, he just needs to stay consistent and kind of keep playing his game and, keep having the confidence and I think him being number one like mentally that'll that'll help him align his confidence and and who knows maybe he'll maybe he'll win more than like a slam next year maybe it's two slams who knows Right, if Djokovic isn't doesn't have the stranglehold on the game anymore, we're not sure what or if we'll see Fed and Nadal at the top of their games again. Why can't Murray win multiple slams? It's all setting up, and I think with his conditioning, I think he can it, last. It could be. It all yeah. it all is the Djokovic factor. Mm-hmm. It all depends kind of on how Djokovic reacts to how he reacts to his bad form from this the past four or five months of this year. So yeah, if Djokovic kind of starts fading away a little, and yeah, Murray, like you said, he's the guy. No, I'm glad you brought him up because I want to talk about Djokovic's year, his beginning of the year and his end of the year. Now overall, and I know you've been very uh, harsh on critics that said that he has had a bad year, because it hasn't been the case. He had a really good year, finishes number two in the world. He was 65-9, and nine, George, on the season. Same number of losses as Murray, 13 less wins. The big thing people are going to look at is the start of the season as good as any year he's ever had in his career, but also the fact that the second half of the season was as bad as he's looked in the last couple of years. And George, what stands out to me in that, in both those things I just said, he was so far and away the number one player in the world after he won the French Open that Federer at three and Murray at two combined didn't have the points that he did. But somehow through Murray's determination and Djokovic playing poorly, you know, he squandered that lead away. And I wonder if the mental side of it has gotten through to Djokovic. He had an absolute stranglehold vice grip on the game and that's not the case anymore after Murray climbed the mountain and took him down. Yeah, I mean, definitely after the French is kind of when it all started, and really when that whole scandal with his with his wife and the whole cheating affair, that's kind of, literally, it's like what, where it all started. So, obviously, Djokovic was having some personal problems, you know, behind the tennis court that definitely was being reflected on the court. And, uh, you know, it was kind of only a matter of time, though, until Djokovic had like this bad run because he was just dominating for so long right and i mean I, I just feel like it was bound to happen for djokovic play poorly for a few months but i, I i'm not it I'm, i don't believe when when a lot of critics are saying that this is the end of djokovic or this is kind of a downfall for him and i, I don't believe it yeah I I, I I i still think djokovic has a great year next year mm-hmm. and he's going to be toe-to-toe with murray and those two guys are going to be the best two guys in the world again and they're kind of going to be going at it during the slams, and maybe one other player can, can sneak a slam in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, too, you know, the other thing to consider is he was a little banged up. He had some injuries that he was dealing with, nothing serious, but you know it, it wears you down. And anytime Djokovic or anybody loses Andy Murray, it's not a terrible thing. Murray's the number one player in the world. He deserves every, you know, ounce of credit that he gets for beating anyone. It was the little things, even towards the end of the year when we watched these matches, some of the points that we're just not used to seeing him make unforced errors and not play at his peak. So I do think it is fair to wonder, George, if we're ever going to see Djokovic be as dominant, as historically dominant, as he once was again. Similar to the way we, you know, we all wondered that about Federer, and we saw him slowly still a great player, but not as dominant, Nadal the same way. So I think that's the part where... It's safe to say he might that's not ever question, be. Yeah, he might not ever have a three slam year again. That's fair to say. That's definitely fair to say. Yeah, there's. I mean, a lot of talented young players that are kind of that will continue on improving every year. So that's gonna give him a hard time. I, I don't think he'll have another three slam year, but I I think he'll have a decent year next year. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not worried about him. Yeah, it is funny though to think though the dynamic has changed now. Now that Murray's number one and Djokovic's number two. What's going to happen? How's the chase going to go for Djokovic? He's in an area he hasn't been in in a while. You know, in any time a player approaches that age of 30, you have to wonder. Some players can last a little longer. 
I think it's fair to wonder if the end is, I don't want to say in sight, George, but Djokovic's is slam-winning years definitely has a countdown clock now. Well, with Djokovic being 30 years old, I guess you can start thinking about that. But yeah, like you said, it may be his, his years of just straight domination on the tour is probably gone, but I can see Djokovic winning two slams next year still. Yeah, it's going to be something to see. We'll have to definitely keep our eyes on it. Talking with George Pinozian on the Money Mitch effect. Before we move on to some other areas of tennis, the ATP World Tour Finals that was Djokovic and Murray features some other players, some players we're not accustomed to with Federer and Nadal out. Anybody else, George, impress you or anybody that you were looking to impress you that underachieved at the tournament? Brown probably impressed me the most because, you know, he was right there. It, it just went to that third set tiebreak and if it wasn't for that then Raonic could have been in the finals and, and who knows maybe Raonic could have been Djokovic as well so yeah Raonic is probably the one that kind of surprised me the most you know he's, he's kind of just getting improving in all, in all aspects of his game so I don't really like his style of play but you know it's working for him and yeah. his serve and his forehand's improved and his movement on the court's been better his uh, attack on the net at the net's been better so you know, if he continues to play like that, you know, I can see him being a consistent quarterfinal, semifinalist next year. Yeah, I mean, well, it's boring. Let's just call it what it is. He plays a very boring it's style. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> it's not fun to watch, but it's effective. And you're right, that match against Murray showed me a lot. His year, his year from Wimbledon on was very good. He had the, the slip oh, up yeah. in the U.S. Well, Open. but yeah, maybe he's the next guy. Maybe he's the, the next guy to break through. The next guy to win a slam could be him and break through for the 1990s era. But we'll see. Nishikori, again, I, I think it's a fitness thing with him because he looked great. He beat Stan, who we know doesn't always get up for non-majors. But he gets to Djokovic, he gets to his fourth match of the tournament, and he crumbles. Still have the same questions with him. I just keep, and I'll segue to this, George, I keep wondering. Now we're in 2017. Now we're wondering who are going to be the next guys to break through. And you look at the top 10, there's 10 different countries represented. There's a lot of young blood in the top 20. Who do you think are some of the guys that can have big years next year and maybe break through to that top 10 or top 5 ranking? Well, I think the guy to watch definitely is Dominic Team. He had an incredible year this year, cracking the top 10, top 8, or top 10, I should say, and him making the ATP World Tour Finals. He had an incredible year. And I could see him kind of sneaking up to that top five. I mean, he's definitely the closest right now. I was a little disappointed with uh, Borna Koric this year, so I, I thought he was going to have a bit of a, a better year than what he what he did. But he's another guy that I love, and and obviously, you know, I love Alexander Zverev too. So, um, I, you know, I think Zverev and team are definitely at the top of their class. I'll, I'll be excited to kind of see how what Zverev does next year and, and to see if team can make it into that top five. He has it all. He has all the tools. Right. Those uh, those are two great choices, George. It's funny. The only issues I have with both are completely different. With team, love his shot selection. Love him playing on all services. Wonder about the fitness, though. You know, we saw him kind of crumble towards the end of the year, get a little tired. And when you get into majors and best of five, I wonder how he's gonna how he's gonna play. Hopefully, he plays not as many tournaments, not as many two fifty lower level tournaments. Yeah. And he could rebound. Zverev, and it's funny to say, it's the mental side. How many of these matches do we see where he has a little meltdown and just gets thrown off his game? The better competition he plays, you know, when he gets to playing those top 10, top 5 guys, that can't happen. You know, you get thrown off your game, you won't beat those guys. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think team will be a little bit smarter this year as far as for... You know, he's a young guy, still trying to... Uh, how old is he? He's like 22 or 23 maybe years old. Maybe 23 this year, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's about right. But yeah, you know, he's, he's obviously still... This year he was still trying to prove himself, so that's why he played a lot of tournaments. And, right. you know, and that's probably why he he did he probably made the ATP World Tour Final, because he just played so many tournaments and he did so well in them. They'll probably be a little more selective with what tournaments they play. I mean, obviously he's got to defend some of those some of those tournaments, but I'm sure he'll be willing to give up 250 points of a tournament that he won this past year, I mean, this year for next year, so maybe just skip a, a 250 tournament and kind of focus on, on the bigger ones. And, uh, yeah, Zverev, yeah, I mean, his his, his temper is 
hilarious, honestly. Like, so is his tattoo. His tattoo is pretty um, funny, too. His tattoo, yeah, he's, he's like, kind of unexpectedly, like, kind of a wild guy. A like, bad boy, yeah. Like, you don't really, like, see that. But, yeah, so, I mean, these guys are young, you know, they're learning. So, obviously, the, the fitness thing is, there are a lot of, a lot of tennis tournaments. I think put any, any, any 22, 23-year-old in that situation, traveling the world and playing tennis almost every day, practicing every day, I mean, it can take a toll on your body. So I think we, we saw that in team kind of towards mm-hmm. the end of the year or on, in certain tournaments where he, it just seemed like he was just completely dead, just didn't right. have any more leg, anything more in his legs, you know. So Yeah, those yeah. are two guys to keep your eyes on. Uh, David Gilfan, I like his game. I think he's somebody that might be close to breaking through. And then Luca Pui, got to look out for him. Maybe he might have been the fastest riser last year. The ground he made up, oh, showing yeah. out at majors. That's the thing with him, George, that I noticed with Pui, his big match ability, because he was kind of an unknown trying to break through, but he performed great under pressure in big moments. I think he could be one. And it's funny, neither of us said Nick Kyrgios, the number 13 player in the world, <laughs> for a, a few reasons. Seriously. Which I, is I, sad. I almost yeah. forgot about it. <laughs> it's sad, though, because I mean, his game is so sad, good. He has a great game, definitely. But uh, there's just too much drama around him. I just, I, it's not gonna work. It's not long term. I don't think it's it's gonna. I don't think he can ever dominate the game. No, so, we're in the same camp. Yeah, we're in the same camp there. He just has to get his head on straight, and that's easier said than done. Still talking tennis with George Pinozian on the Money Mitch effect. The final tennis tournament of the year took place this past weekend, George. A favorite tournament of a lot of people, including one Brian Nelson. The Davis Cup wrapped up. Argentina wins their first Davis Cup ever. They beat Croatia for the title. Five rubbers, five matches it took them to win it. What a great performance. And it starts with, in my opinion, the guy that is the comeback player of the year. It is the best story uh, of tennis probably this year. That's Juan Martin Del Potro, George, a big favorite of both of ours. He comes back from two sets down to win the fourth rubber against Marin Cilic, and then Federico Del Bonis beats Ivo Karlovic in straight sets in the final. But Del Pocho, George, what a story. This guy's had multiple wrist surgeries. He missed over a year of tennis, and he's picking up right where he left off, winning big matches in big pressure situations. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so happy for him. You know, talk about one of the best Davis Cup finals maybe, maybe ever, but that was definitely an incredible story about... Juan Martín del Potro, and, and that comeback in number four was just just phenomenal to watch, and it couldn't have been anybody else that I would have wanted to see to, to come back from two sets down, you know, and then those Argentinian fans, you know, wow, it was yeah. so fun, that was like part of the... Maradona was there. The yeah, yeah, you know, so, yeah, so it was a great, it was a great uh, way to end the year, and I'm happy for Argentina, and all those fans that came over from a 12-hour flight from Argentina to Zagreb, Croatia, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Dr. Evo kind of wishes maybe he didn't come out of retirement to, <laughs> to play in that Davis Cup final. Yeah, <laughs> and they, they could have used Borna Koric on Croatia, uh, certainly, Absolutely, in yeah. those matches. Would have been a different, a whole different matchup if he played. Probably. You got, you got to give it up to Del Potro, what he went through, and just being a good guy, fighting his way through it, showing the emotion, playing these tournaments that... You know, he didn't have to play in the Davis Cup, George. We talk about this tournament a lot, but you don't really get a lot out of it money-wise. It's country pride. It's not ranking points or anything like that. And playing five best-of-five set rubbers is, is taxing on a guy coming off a wrist surgery. But he did it. He, he felt like he owed it to his country for sticking with him. And a great job. That fourth rubber, you mentioned, they are down 2-0. And the Croatian fans... And kind of the umpire going against Del Potro. He had to battle a lot of factors. It was a big road victory, and he got the job done. Just phenomenal to see. I'm excited to see him next year, George. He's ranked 39 in the world. He does a yeah, good, If he yeah. does pretty well in January, a couple, you know, maybe wins a tournament here or there, or 250, he could get up into that seated range. He, he definitely can. Oh, easily. I mean, I, I just hope that there's no setbacks or injuries for him. So, yeah, if he stays healthy, you know, his... His finesse and conditioning is just obviously going to continue on improving. 
because, you know, he's probably not used to, like, after taking a few years off, like, basically, you know, mm-hmm. to come back on tour and be playing a lot of tennis. And, and for the amount of tennis that he played in, in, in those three days, he even played in that doubles night. He played three days in a row. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and that, that forehand yeah. still looks lethal. That forehand still looks down. Yeah, that will be awesome if he can even make a final, make a grand slam final. <laughs> Imagine that. Oh, wow. The crowd would be going. And, yeah. and we know, too, yeah. it, it's important to explain to people that don't follow tennis as seriously that if you get to ranked in the top 32, you're guaranteed a seated spot, and that's avoiding a Joker or a Murray in the first round of a slam. That's the goal, and he's close. He'll get there soon enough, but hopefully for his sake and for our sake, it's before the Australian Open. Yeah, that's definitely very important for him to kind of get that seed. I think he will. Yeah, I think so too. I think he's yeah. he's right there. Tough one for Croatia. They won one Davis Cup a while ago, but it was not meant to be this year. But big winners are Argentina and uh, just Croatia in general because that crowd was was very okay looking. Oh yeah, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> Got to make a road uh, trip. We're gonna be going out to Croatia. Or we're gonna be putting in for uh, remote assignments. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I kind of want to go to Argentina. <laughs> that's yeah. You're a world, you know. You're a world traveler. We should point that out. So, yeah, well, that's yeah, true. You know, I've, been, I've been to Croatia, so I've, I've seen it up close. Right, uh, and you didn't come back with an accent, which I found interesting, it, which is a staple that of the was George travel. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's back. All right, that the accent <laughs> yeah, that won't on. the accent that won't die is back. That's great. Well, yeah, that one just seems to stick. It just sticks. <laughs> Hey, real quick, George, before we switch topics here, on the women's tour, which wrapped up with the Czech Republic winning another Fed Cup, which is the female equivalent to the Davis Cup, and Dominika Sivilkova winning the WTA Finals in an improbable fashion, what do we have to look forward to next year? Now with Kerber being number one, Serena not playing as much tennis, bothered by injury at the end of the year, what can we look forward to on the women's tour? Uh, not not a lot. <laughs> uh, Breaking news. I'm I'm kind of excited to see how how Angelique Kerber kind of plays it all out with being number one in the world, and and I think the the more interesting story is about Serena, and and I don't know how many is this her last year, or I I, I can't really see her playing see, more than that. See, that's so the I'm, interesting I'm thing. I know she's trying to. She's yeah. Definitely aiming for the most Grand Slams. Mm-hmm. You know, we we all know that. So. She's probably going to take the first Australian Open. It will kind of be a good, uh, good test for her and kind of see like if she can win that, then I think you know she'll she'll try and get her Grand Slam victories this year and get it out of the way. So she, I know she wants to retire. That's, yeah, that's, that's definitely a fact. So here's the thing with Serena Williams, in my opinion, Steffi Graf and her are tied right now at 22, most in the in this era. Uh, I would say she wants to just get 23, and she will retire. And she's not going to retire like Kobe Bryant where she writes an op-ed and she goes no. on this year-long yeah. tour. She's going to retire the end of a match. It's going to happen. Now, the I one caveat that. to that, though, is I think she wants to go out in the U.S. Open. I think that's the last tournament she's going to play. I think she'll end a year. So if she gets to 23 before then, which is probably going to happen, then I would put money on the U.S. Open being her last tournament, the 2017 U.S. Open. Yeah, that's a great prediction. I think that'll be... What about if she wins the Australian Open and gets 23 there? See, yeah, see, no, that's what's interesting to me is I think, I don't think she's going to retire until the end of the season, if that makes sense. Like, I think she wants to end it at the U.S. Open, which yeah, could be, if I she, you know, if she gets yeah. it before, I think she runs out the season and then knows going into the U.S. Open, this is it, whatever happens. But if she doesn't and she wins the U.S. Open as number 23, I think she makes a decision right there on the spot. That's it. I'm going out on top. I got 23. It's over. And to be completely honest, George, with how Kerber's playing and how Serena is battling injury, I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion that she gets a slam before the U.S. Open. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you never know. Kinda. A lot of hungry girls out there, hungry ladies, that are you know looking for their first grand slam and seeing uh, <laughs> a kind of coming. Coming into stardom this year, I think she's kind of a good player to watch. There are there are so, options. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean the thing is, uh, if you're saying she doesn't want a Kobe Bryant type of farewell tour, if she wins early and she announces I'm going to be retiring at the U.S. Open this year, so if she gets it, it all depends on the Australian Open. Cause if 
she doesn't win the Australian Open, then there's still a lot of questions. Then you're kind of like, okay, let's see how she does in the French, Wimbledon, you know. I think the best way would be if she doesn't win a slam until the U.S. Open, and then she she retires at the end of On that the match. Spot. That would be probably the I best just, for her. I, I don't see her as the type of athlete that wants that. I think she just wants to play. And you know, we, we can see that she wants to retire, but she hasn't said anything publicly. I don't think she wants the glitzy, glamoury goodbye tour. I think she just wants to leave when she leaves. Uh, that's just my opinion, yeah. reading into Serena, reading into what I know of her. But who knows? You said Pliskova, whenever Azarenka comes back, Maria Sharapova's coming back, who knows what she's going to look like. There are options out there. I, I don't know if we can assume that anyone's going to win a Grand Slam, but Hey, it's it's the WTA tour. Get excited! <laughs> I don't know what's gonna happen, so we'll see. Yeah. Oh yeah, we'll see. All right, George. George Pinozian on the Money Mitch effect. Well, we have to address this now because we are in a historic time. This is this is great. It's a great time to be alive because say what you want about the Chicago Cubs ending their drought of 108 years without the World Series, but there's a new streak in town. And it belongs to the man I'm talking to right now, George Pinozian, starting off his fantasy oh, yeah. season five and zero, oh, and he's five and seven right now. Seven, count them all up: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven straight losses by the guy who is known as the fantasy guru around work by himself, and he is. And he is. I thought that was pretty good. No. Yeah. So my first question to you about this tragic, tragic fall from grace is, do you still like your team? I think my team is incredible still. That's, that's, uh, I'm going to kind of stick by that. I just, I'm I happy, haven't seen this before. I'm happy to be, a, I'm happy to be. <laughs> well, it's, okay, obviously my team, there's been a lot of bumps on the road, for sure, which obviously led to me losing seven straight. And, and there's, you know, I've gotten, I've gotten unlucky big time, and probably, I would say probably three of those losses were, were easily ones that I could have won, and that even just one or two of those, if if I were to have won those, then it just would have been a different story, but I think uh, the good thing about my team is, like, my entire vision of what I wanted is, is finally here now, and I know Thomas Rawls had an awful <laughs> That's week. good, that's good. <laughs> that's fine, that's fine, and I know I've yeah. been kind of, he's almost practically ruined my season. But, you know, me picking up Sammy Watkins, I think, was, was pretty big. And obviously now I'm out of playoff contention. So I'm, I'm just already looking forward to uh, winning that consolation, or I should say the Nelly Prize. Yeah, I should um, point out, too. I mean, I'm in the consolation <laughs> bracket also. But this is the first so, yeah. time all season, George, that you've looked up at me in the standings. That has to be the worst. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. I looked at the standings this morning, and I was... I saw that I was like tenth place or something, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, what a what a meltdown!" But the thing is that I'm, I'm most likely gonna get high points this week to kind of okay, kind of kind of you know yeah shut everyone up. And, Here's the stakes. My team's looking nice this week. If I beat you, I play and you this week. We're going head to head. I I have a lot of pressure on me not to get that top seed in the consolation yeah. bracket, but the whole league's rooting and for I'm, me. I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for you, Mitch. Trust me. <laughs> But I, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I can, I can see my team going for, like, 140 this week. Right. Or you can go for high point for 130, which is what my team did last week in getting the high points. Yeah. So that's yeah. something to think about. Uh, yeah. It could be a shootout. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it's good timing for you. And um, mm -hmm. <laughs> at the same time, like, I'm, I'm okay with losing because I, I want to be part of history. And good or bad, and obviously in this case bad, at least, you know, it's, it's something that's never been done before and it's, we're in a unique situation and and since I'm already out of playoffs, why not? Why, why not? Why not? Contribute to the books, you know? I've never seen Brian Nelson as happy as I've seen him in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. He's just like a little kid on Christmas morning every day we talk about your team. And it's serious, I have never followed another team like I've followed your team. It's always just my team how I'm doing and we, we want to uh, keep it keep it up to date and well, you know the board and it's going to be a big week for you you're going to get honored uh, all throughout work this is a big week for you so be ready for your celebration yeah i mean i'm not looking forward to the power rankings on the, on the whiteboard for me to see tomorrow are you so, sad uh, yeah that's going to be a rough day i i, I don't know i'm not calling sick did you was, 
Nelly incident? Did you guys update? No, it? we got one more day, and then we're gonna wait till we're all there tomorrow and do it in person. But it <laughs> so look forward to that. Also, serious, George. There are seven. Are you worried that there are seven week, almost two month old babies that have never seen you on planet Earth win a fantasy game? <laughs> I mean, we gotta do uh, this for the kids. If you beat me, I mean, this is gonna be a long. You know what? Year. I, I might be Side bet with you for oh, see, that's how it works. Just to spice things up, and uh, well, thank God for you know Nelly sucking the last few years, but for him to kind of invent the consolation prize winner because yeah. he was probably already thinking that he was going to be in the consolation ladder this year. So, thanks, Nelly, for that. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, it helps us out <laughs> in the year that he finally does make the actual playoffs. It helps us out. But, you know, all jokes aside, George, you really got screwed this week. You had Zach Ertz, oh, only yeah. needed one point from the half of the, halfway through the third quarter on, couldn't get it to you. Just some terrible luck. That's fantasy football. You probably you won some games you shouldn't have early, and you're getting screwed late, and that's just the nature of the game. No one is really an expert. That's my theory on fantasy football. Exactly. And, you know, good thing I'm in three leagues, so <laughs> yeah. I can at least I have a couple other leagues to kind of now focus more on my attention in, but obviously because I see you guys all the time, and <laughs> I definitely cared a lot about this one. And you but, dance in the you know, hallways. Like you said, that's fantasy, and, and it's fine. It's cool. That's, that's how it goes. Yeah. That means some days... I move some, on. Some I'm days, not, I gotta move on. Some days you're high dancing in the hallways, another day you're low, you know. You know? L7, L8. Cool, man. Yeah, typical. Well, keep your head up, George. It'll be over soon. That's uh, <laughs> That's all I got for you. <laughs> But George Pinozian, really thanks for thanks for joining the Money Mitch Effect, and yeah, yeah just keep on. Now tennis is over, we'll we'll have to get you back here for basketball. Check out those baby Lakers, you know their rise oh, nice. to yeah, uh, their rise to fame. I'm actually watching them right now. They're not doing so well, but Nick Young went down in the first quarter already. I think. Oh no! Reiterating his injury. <laughs> oh, so, no. uh, we'll see. We'll see yeah. there. Hey, it's going to be an exciting season. They're maybe. down by 23 points right now. So, yeah. <laughs> going to be an exciting season uh, if you're a Laker fan. So there you go. George Spinozian, thanks for joining the program. Thanks again. Fun to mention. It was a great discussion with George Benozian about tennis and his fantasy football woes. I'm excited. I'm excited for next year's tennis season, but even more important than that, to make history and give George his eighth consecutive fantasy football loss. If I can beat him, that would be... Well, that's like winning a championship for me and everybody else, I can assure you, in this league is rooting me on. All right, now it's time to talk hockey with Eric Roberts, a Fox Sports producer and a contributor for the hockey writers. He covers the Kings. We'll talk about his team as well as the surging Columbus Blue Jackets, what the Pacific Division looks like, how the Rangers have been able to lead the league in goal scores, and some more NHL storylines as we're a quarter of the way in. Hard to believe it's gone by that fast, but it has. Here now, Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now joining the program, we have Eric Roberts on the line. From the hockey writers and a producer for Fox Sports Radio, Eric, now a reoccurring guest. Thanks for joining the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always free to talk some puck, you know. It's, uh, it's getting cold here in California, so I feel right at home. I know. We're we're getting down to the 40s and, you know, mostly the 50s, but it is getting chilly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have some family back in Buffalo, and I'm talking to them, and they're like, it's 42. I mean, that's, that's nice. They're talking about getting snowed in and, like, 12-degree weather, and I'm like, it hits below 50, and I'm like, I'm locking down in my apartment, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I've noticed that the people of Buffalo don't really have much sympathy for other people talking about how cold it is, so they're probably the wrong team oh, yeah, to bark very, up. <laughs> very little. 
<laughs> so we'll, we'll start with the team that's near and dear to your heart, the team you cover for the hockey writers, the Los Angeles Kings. And Eric, the last time we talked, we were getting ready for opening night. Opening night saw Jonathan Quick, arguably the most important goalie to any team in the NHL, get injured in his first game. He's been out for an extended period of time, still on the shelf. And a lot of people in this town and around the league were worrying about what the Kings would look like in his absence. The Kings right now are on a five-game winning streak, the hottest team in the NHL, and it's been a remarkable job battling that and other injuries. Eric, frankly, how have they done it? You know what? I When Quick went down, he played 20 minutes of the season so far, and when he went down, I was, I was out, much like anybody else, pretty shocked. I was like, okay, well, that's the workhorse. 19 minutes in, he pulls his groin, and then fast forward 22 games later, they're 12-9-1, sitting in the third playoff spot in the Pacific Division, and you know what? It's, it's honestly, it's all been Peter Budai. He's stepped in. He's stopped the bleeding. He's gone 12-6-1 for the Kings. He's he's up in the top five in wins. He has a 9-1-7 uh, save percentage. 204 goals against average, and he's really he's hit the floor running for the Kings. And without him, honestly, I don't know where the Kings would be because he's not even the original backup that was standing behind Quick. He was backing up Zach Toff, mm-hmm. who went down with his own his own injury not once but twice. So Peter Budai has really been the uh, the saving grace for the Kings so far this season. I mean, when not one but two NHL goalies go down for your team, you don't really expect much. And to be 12 9 and 1, 22 games in the season, it's a uh, it's sort of a miracle, honestly. It's really crazy. It really is. And this is one of the things where I don't know many teams that would have been able to overcome this. It starts in that dressing room. Budai has played amazing. And it's funny because most times you see the minor league programs are in the Ontario Reign, in the Kings case, are filled with a lot of young, untested goalies. This is one where the Kings had that veteran down there. They were able to go into that well. They still needed Budai to perform, and he's done a remarkable job. And I look at some of the forwards that are producing, scoring the goals. It's the heavy hitters. It's Jeff Carter. It's Tyler Toffoli. They're leaning on their on their stars to get him out of it, and they're doing mm-hmm. a great job of that. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Carter, I think, has four game-winning goals in, over the course of the Kings' five-game winning streak they're currently on. He, he definitely hit another gear when uh, Kopitar went down. I think he missed about five games with a wrist injury. Jeff Carter really stepped in. He stepped in a lot of positions that, you know, usually you see Carter out there, Kofi, excuse me, out there for taking those face-offs and, situations and Carter really really stepped up and circling back to Budai real quick I mean a lot of people kind of panicked I mean I panicked the first two because you know you, you, all of a sudden you got your two AHL goalies on the bench and no NHL starters but Budai wasn't a bum He's a, he was the AHL goalie of the year last year I think he was I read somewhere he was the first goalie in like last 40 something years to win 40 plus games in the NHL he has 300 NHL games under his belt so you kind of see it, and it's like, okay, well, he's not some kid off the street kind of thing. So, I mean, they definitely have this veteran presence that is really shiny right now, and this injury bug that's hit him really hard. And, Eric, what is it about overtime that the Kings are able to succeed at? I don't know that there's been a better team since they've switched to the three-on-three format at the NHL than the Kings. They got a lot of those wins early and even late with their win over the Blackhawks on Saturday in the extra frame. Mm-hmm. And not, a lot of times not even going to a shootout. What makes the Kings click in that moment? I really think it's just it's the open ice. They, the Kings kind of have this stigma against them that they're, you know, the rough and tumble kind of team. They're big bodies. They want to play in the corners on the longer side walls and stuff like that. But when, when there's room to skate, they have some speedsters out there. They have Tyler Defoley, Tanner Pearson, Jeff Carter, Kopitar. They have players like Muzzin, Dowdy, and Martinez back on the blue line that aren't afraid to step up, and I think once you get any mixture of like those three, it's, it's going to be a quick turnaround, and if you get caught sleeping, they're going to be going 2-1 the other way, or even if it's the same pressure like Carter's last goal against the Blackhawks, he'll just take the space and walk in and pick a corner. They're lethal, lethal on three-on-three overtime. They are. They have a lot of experienced guys that know what they're doing in that situation, and we can complain about all the escalating ticket prices of the NHL, Whenever the Kings and the Blackhawks play three on three overtime, that is worth the price of admission because it is some of oh, the yeah, best some, hockey yeah, you could get. Uh, and one last thing on the Kings, Eric, I'm looking at this situation now. The Kings are third in the playoff picture. Quick should be back sometime in the in the near future. We hope. Could this actually be a blessing for him, getting that time off, maybe recharging the batteries, coming back uh, rejuvenated on a team that's still not out of the playoff picture? Yeah, you mean I mean as far as a blessing as an injury can go, I mean. It's, a lot of people were actually questioning him playing in the, the World Cup of Hockey before the season started because mm-hmm. of the fact, you know, they tire him out and 
Quick is no one to shy away from a start. You know, he's usually among the league leaders in starts and wins because of, because of that. So they were, everybody was a little afraid, you know, about the whole the workload, you know, playing an extra month and a half hockey, then into the NHL season, and possibly a deep playoff run back in June. If you're still playing, that's a long haul. So it could, honestly, it could pay off in the long, in the, the long haul if Budai can keep everybody, keep the Kings afloat, and then quick kind of jump in, fresh legs, and the Kings kind of ride him as far as he can take him. Yeah, obviously he needs to come back at full strength. Budai has proven to be, at the very least, a serviceable starter when they need him to be. This could bode well for the Kings. They're going to need to get back to full strength, but this could bode well for them. And in turning now to the Pacific Division, Eric, you have Edmonton at the top of the division. You have the Sharks one away from them, and the Kings right tied with the Sharks in that third spot. But Edmonton and San Jose. Now, San Jose was in the finals last year, but these upstart Oilers have the first have the first spot in the Pacific a quarter through the season. Are you sold on them as being a legitimate division contender when the season ends in April? Um, I, I don't know if I'm completely sold yet. I I think once the calendar year flips 2017, maybe on January 1st, we'll have a little bit more of a feel because that's exactly what they are. They're young, they're upstart. Nobody really had them pegged to even be a, like really that relevant in the playoff picture. And here they are sitting at the top of the division and really throwing a, a, a kink in the, uh, the all-California stranglehold that the Kings and Ducks and Sharks usually have on the division but I mean but they have like they have the young legs they have the speed the talent they're getting good goaltending so it's it's going to come down to I think it's going to come down to how long their defense and their goalie can hold up because I mean they have the, the offensive firepower that's definitely not the problem so yeah and and I wonder I mean they're three six and one in their last 10 so they've started to kind of hit that wall not really catching teams by surprise while they have made a lot of progress but I wondered, I got to catch that Kings-Oilers game uh, a little over uh, a week ago, and what struck me about that game was was the first time he saw the Oilers play against a team that you know had respect for them, knew they were good, but a team with size, a team that was well-coached and neutralized some of their top players, I don't know that they can win those games, those heavy, grinded-out type games. I just don't mm-hmm. think they're there yet. Yeah, they're, they're very, they're very run-and-gun kind of hockey, and as the season progresses, you're going to get guys that are banged up and not exactly as fresh as they are. The season starts in October, so the run and the gun, the speed not might not be there. So they're definitely going to have to find something to kind of shut teams down and not win games with the high-scoring mentality. In keeping with the Pacific, one final note, you have the Ducks that are sitting in that top wildcard spot just to point out of what would be a tie for second. They're 5-3-2 and two in their last 10. Four overtime losses on the season. They had a, just a dreadful start to the year. But do you think they're starting to figure it out? Should we expect the Ducks to factor very much into the specific division race? I think they do. I think they will. They had kind of might mirror kind of what they did last year. They had that horrible start, and then once December hit, they went on just a crazy run, caught the Kings in the first, and eventually won the division. I think they had a lot of a lot of outside factors weighing in on them. You know, with the holdout, with their young guns like Hampus Lindholm, stuff like that. I mean. But I think as they should be catching their feet, their the ground and stuff. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they pull it together. And you know, the, the Pacific in general is just is pretty clustered right now. So they're only two points out of first with a game in hand on Edmonton. So I mean, the Pacific Division could turn in just to a a pretty wild race here as the season progresses, especially if Edmonton sticks around for the long run. Yeah, it is very similar to last year because they. They're still playing good defensive hockey. They're not getting scored on that much, just 54 you know, goals against this year. The offense, that's the part that last year picked up. If they can keep playing defense, they'll keep themselves in all these games. And once their goal scorers wake up, which we expect them to do, they should be fine. Now, I expect them, as you do, to be right in the mix toward the end of the season. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to whether or not the Pacific Division can keep pace and whoever the odd man out is of those four teams, whether or not they can wrestle away a wild card spot from the Central Division, because they've cleaned house on the, the playoff spots the last couple of years. Certainly have, and we will keep talking here now with Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch effect. Let's look now at the scoring leaders, statistical leaders this year in the season. We're a quarter in, there's a lot to be decided. But some interesting notes, some interesting trends developing. Leading point getter in the NHL right now is Connor McDavid at 29 points, Nikita Kucherov at 26, Mark Schleffley third at 24, Tarasenko, Patrick Kane, and Tyler Sagan round out what would be the top six. 
But looking at it, we expected McDavid to be here, to be in this mix, to be very much at the top. But I think now it's, time, it's safe to say, Eric, that Nikita Kucherov, he can no longer be considered the most underrated player in the NHL. I mean, he's pretty much officially arrived. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's been on another young upstart team over in Tampa Bay. Um, when you look at the top, well, I guess, let's see here, top four of the top five, you have a very young feel to it. I mean, and Patrick Kane isn't exactly a young stud that he was anymore, but you look at McDavid, Kucherov, Shifley, Tarasenko, and then even if you expand a little bit, you got Panarin at number nine. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a young, the young upcoming next class of the NHL, you know. But but then at the same time, you still got Kane, you have Kane, Sagan, Evgeny Malkin, Phil Kessel, the top eleven. So it's it's a really interesting mix of the the next class along with the veteran elite kind of in the NHL right now. Yeah, Schleffley really, uh, he surprises me because we knew his potential. He's staying healthy and he's very much a factor on Winnipeg, but you alluded to it. Everybody except Kane in the top seven, if you had Galchenyuk in there, are born in the 90s. So this is the, uh-huh. the new era. But if you go to the goal scoring ledger, this, this is the one that jumps out at me. Leading goal scorer in the league, a guy we didn't name, Sidney Crosby, 15 goals and just, I think, five or six assists. This is not something we expect to see. Crosby's usually the other way, Eric, assist rather than goals. Why has he been such a force putting the puck in the net this year? You know, I, I, I don't know. And then he has missed some time. He's, he's got 20 points in 16 games, so he's, <laughs> he's well over a point-per-game pace. And yeah, mm-hmm. Like you said, he has this knack for the net that so far this season where you know he's driving, he's taking, he's taking high-quality shots, and it's honestly looking like Pete Crosby, which is good because we felt like we were kind of seeing that during the World Cup of Hockey and towards the end of last season where and then he kind of had the concussion problems before the season started, and everyone was kind of hesitant. It was like, okay, well, what were we going to get from Crosby? Was he going to be a little slower, a little more hesitant out on the ice? But he's put all that to bed, and he's, he's um, scoring at a real fast pace right now. He's looked lethal. As good of a, a goal-scoring year as he's had, and if he stays healthy, he could do wonders in that column. The other name that jumps out to me on that side of the ledger, I mean, you expect to see guys like Ovechkin there. But rookie, Patrick Laine for Winnipeg, 12 goals this year. And Austin Matthews scored four his first game, and he's as good as advertised, but the number two pick's not so bad either. Yeah, we circle right back to the, the young gun movement in the NHL right now. Patrick Laine, I've read nothing but good things about him. He's been compared with Alexander Ovechkin numerous times with his, they say his shot is just, he gets everything behind it. And watching him play, you can just tell he's just, He's looking out. He's going out. And he's trying to score every shift. He's on the ice. It's good for it's good for the city of Winnipeg. I mean, and then you have Austin Matthews who he, he roughed on the team with that four goal night. He just had a hat trick the other night. It's fun to watch. You know, those these young kids are revitalizing some of the the franchises. You know, that have been in the dust, struggling really to really pull viewers in general or pull storylines. And Patrick Laine has brought some warmth to Winnipeg, and Austin Matthews has brought some positive press to Toronto. Yeah, they both have. And in Line's case, people forget that he went to a good team. Winnipeg fell in the water. Like, they got lucky to get that two pick. They weren't as bad as some of these seller-dwelling teams. So that helped the situation. But it's weird to watch him play. He's not a guy, I wouldn't say he's slow, but he doesn't rely on speed. It's that shot. It's his, his craftiness, much like you know his idol in Alex Ovechkin and finding a way to get it off and get everything into it. I'm... I'm really excited for where this is going. He's going to factor into the race for goal-scoring lead at the end of the year. I think we can agree on that. Yeah, if you watch highlights from him and Ovechkin, you kind of watch them. They, they kind of maybe start gliding once they hit the blue line. And it, most people are like, okay, well, just taking it off. They're going to pull up, maybe pass. But at that point, they hit the blue line. They're looking shot. And if there's a hole, they're going to, they're going to put that puck in there and put it in hard. So now switching to another topic, Eric, it wouldn't be the NHL without a uh, coach getting relieved of his duties before Christmas. The Florida Panthers made the call. Gerard Gallant is fired. This is the guy that was a coach of the year finalist last year. Just got a new contract, but the Panthers make the move. Tom Rowe, the GM, will become the new coach. By all accounts, this is a mess in Sunrise, Florida. Looking at it from an outsider, Eric, is there any explaining why this happened, the guy that is respected by the locker room and around the league? I haven't seen one viable excuse where read one insider report that, that even gets close to them saying that this was justified or makes any sense. 
He put up 103 points last season with the Panthers. They won their division. Like you said, a coach of the year finalist. They're, they're only two points out of the playoff spot this season in late November. Plenty of time. What I've read from most of it is it's coming down to a, a philosophical difference between ownership and the head coach. They kind of were pushing analytics. He's not really an analytics guy. And they just kind of let that play its course and pull the plug on him for really what most of were saying no really valid reason and it seems like most of the players are pretty upset about it he was a good coach when i read a, a real players coach and he did he was doing fine like they were just out of a playoff spot with you know yarmer yager wasn't isn't putting up numbers like his iron man self has key players like fubido have been out so i mean he, he's really been justified for even having a somewhat of a slow start and honestly i think it was just kind of a the ownership and the coaches were at odds and he came out of the short end of the stick this really is a head-scratcher for me for a lot of reasons. One being, you, you mentioned it, hit the nail on the head. They were without three of their top six forwards for a large portion of this league. I dare you to find one team that's not going to have a little setback in, if that were the case. The locker room respected him. He just got a new contract. I totally understand if you want to go in a different philosophical direction. If you're the owner or the GM, you have that right with your franchise. But why even give him the new deal to begin with? I, I'm always, you know, hesitant to judge without looking at the big picture. But this one is is a complete head scratcher. The team likes him; they're upset about it. I, I don't know how they're going to do this year. I can't imagine that they're going to not feel some ramifications of this. But mm-hmm. I just I don't know. I, I think this is a good coach that got that got hung out to dry by the front office, and yeah, they're oh, one yeah. point out of and, a playoff spot. And they did it in a a completely, like, unethical manner. Yeah, he talked to the media first. There's pictures, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there are pictures of him, like, just kind of left out in the parking lot with his bag, and they barely called a cab for him, really, and it's just, it was wow. really handled poorly from top to bottom on the, the Panthers' management side of things. Yeah, I don't, you don't make this move, in my opinion, in November in the way that they did. You make it in the offseason, you, you figure out a way to do it amicably, but... We'll see. This is a team still with a lot of talent, still with uh, some deep aspirations and a division that's very much for the taking. We'll have to see there. Looking at the Eastern Conference to some other teams, maybe the biggest surprise story in the entire league this year, Eric, is how good the Columbus Blue Jackets are playing. They're 12-5, and 12-5-4, top wildcard spot in the Eastern Conference. This is a team that has a plus-19 goal differential, 6-2-2 in their last 10. How have the Blue Jackets, who were at times an embarrassment last year. How have they been able to fix their problems and play good hockey this year? They're getting good goaltending from uh, Sergei Bravovsky. He's pulled out 12 wins and 19 starts. He's, he's rocking a 209 goal against average, 930 save percentage. He has three shutouts on the year. It derives a lot from they're working their way from the, the, the crease out. I think they're all buying into, you know, he's going to go out there and he's going to give them a chance to win. And that's where a, a big chunk of that goal differential comes from because He's not letting any pucks past them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you also got to give credit to how Columbus has developed their defense. There was a lot of flack, some justifiably so, with how the Ryan Johansson thing went down, having him won out of town. They ended up with arguably as good a haul as they could have got. If you compare what happened in Edmonton with Taylor Hall wanting pretty much out of town, you know, the Blue Jackets got Seth Jones, who is playing at an unbelievable clip, was good in Nashville, is continuing to get better, still just 20, I think 22, 23 years old. But you have Wierenski, who's also good. And some of their free agent signings are finally are finally paying off. Brandon Saad's looking good. I do agree with you, though. It comes back to the goaltending on that side of the ice that Bobrovsky, who was a top goalie in the league not a few years ago, this is a guy that if he's healthy... If he's playing with good defensemen in front of him, this is a dangerous team. They're they're playing very well and they're doing it against good teams. They're they're buying into each other's play, and that's I think that's one of the biggest things is that in the past the Blue Jackets were kind of a you know the staff game for you know whoever they're playing, but I think they're buying into that they have the they have the right pieces. They believe they can win, and it's that's a confidence goes a long way in the NHL. If they're going on the ice and they're just not sure what's going to happen, who's going to perform for them. You know, you're not going to be playing well from the get-go. But they go out and they think they have a chance to win, and they're winning. And, I mean, they, they started out the season not on the best foot. but And I think I think John Tortorella kind of got them going early on because I think he was feeling the heat because 
they didn't have such a great season last year. He had his whole fiasco with Team USA at the World mm-hmm. Cup. So I think he was kind of feeling the heat coming in. So I think he kind of lit a fire under him and said, hey, we're going to come out of the gate. We're not going to dig an early season hole. We're going to get, a, for the most part, a lead in the, in the division and get early and just try to keep it. Yeah, and I, I keep going back. I know it's just one game. I know a lot of funky stuff happened. But it really turned for them in that ridiculous game where they beat Montreal 10 to nothing, and Montreal hadn't even mm-hmm. had a regular se- a regulation loss. I think that kind of opened some eyes. Like okay, In that locker room, like, okay, we can compete. We can beat any team in this league. This was a team that had, had lost in regulation, and they were able to dismantle. I think they took it and they ran with it. But their division, too. Now, they're in, the, they're in the Metro division, Eric, as we continue on talking hockey with Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch Effect. The top three teams in that division are lethal. You have the Rangers in first, the Penguins in second, the Capitals in third with a lot of points to be made up, 33, 29, 28. I don't know about you, but I see this as a three-way race all the way through the season, three very good clubs that are going to be jostling for position. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, those, the Metropolitan Division, could either one of those one, two, or three could be playing for the Cup uh, in June. They all have the, the three like, big facets. You know, They have the goalie. They have the forward power. They have the strong defense. If one of those teams gets hot, they can easily go win 16 games in June. They can go on a run here and just really distance themselves from the rest of the East Division and probably win a President's Trophy. It would not surprise me if one of those three teams has a President's Trophy and the number one seed throughout the playoffs to come the end of the season. Yeah, and this is what I don't like about Gary Bettman's new NHL playoff rules. Each one of these teams could be a cup champion, but they have to play each other in the first and second rounds of the playoffs. Like, why shouldn't this be a conference final if they are the two best teams in the conference? That's how I look at it. No, yeah, definitely. That's the whole seeding process. There's plenty of people that want to get to a work of divisions altogether, and then there's the, the fact that those three teams have to duke it out and eventually just pretty much take away from you know a solid conference final is really bad for the fans and bad for the NHL in general. It's like I'd rather see a Capitals, Penguins, you know, Crosby, Ovechkin in the in the conference final instead of knocking each other out in the first or second mm-hmm. round. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people think Washington Pittsburgh was the conference final last year. The way that series was played, how competitive it was, those were the two best teams at, at that time of the playoffs. Pittsburgh then going on to win the Cup. And right now with the Rangers at first, kind of surprising people that they're doing this good. Still a lot of talent on that roster. Grabner scoring a lot of goals. Does it surprise you, Eric, that they currently lead the NHL in goals? They've scored 88 on the season in 24 games. I- I'm, I'm a little taken back by how, how fast and how often they're scoring these goals. Yeah, it's, it's definitely surprising because you, you look at their, their roster and you don't really you see the, the offensive potential, but you don't see the feeling they're hitting right now. They're blowing through, basically. And, you know, with a player, with a goalie like Lundqvist in the back, a high-flying offense and pretty much one of the top goalies in the league, it's really lethal. I mean, but like I said with Edmonton, it's going to come down to whether or not they can sustain it. But, I mean, even if they partially sustain it, that's more than enough to win with their roster. Yeah, with Lundqvist and Nett and the defense they have, that's the biggest difference between how Edmonton's played. And they have experience, too. They've been ravaged by by some of their moves that the front office has made. But the guys that they have, the, the signings they made this year are starting to pay off. And I think this is a very dangerous team that's going to be in it for the long haul. I don't see them, I mean, they could get bumped out of the division because of how good Pittsburgh and Washington are. But I don't see them fading down the stretch. This is a, a damn good team. Those three are probably just going to duke it out to see where they're seated because I don't see Columbus or you know any of the other Metro Division really keeping pace with them. So it's going to be they're going to have to settle for a wild card while the Rangers, Penguins, and Capitals kind of just jockey for position for one, two, or three. Right, they're certainly looking good at this moment, and it's still to me want to talk about one more power in the Eastern Conference area. The Montreal Canadiens, should we start at this point 22 games in, 34 points most in the league? Should we be viewing them as a top flight, top team in the league, or are you skeptical still? Um, you know, I'm buying into them because we kind of saw this last year when they went out to that unbelievable start. They, I forget how many exactly they won, but they won a bunch of games to start the season. Then Carey Price got hurt, and then their, their season kind of just fell. I think they only won like three games over like a month and a half span but you know Carey Price is Carey Price this year he's, he's looking good they're looking good the 
Shea Weber uh, trade, which happened during the uh, offseason for P.K. Subban, it has really, they are coming out looking like a winner in this right now. I mean, he has eight goals, 18 points. He's top three in the points on the team. They're clicking on all cylinders, and like I said, it's, they have it coming from the net out. They have the solid goaltending, they have the defense, and they're, they're scoring goals. So that's, that's the, the, the three you need right there. Yeah, they have the formula that works. Weber's fit in nicely. Galchenyuk's playing well. This is a tough team. You do worry, though. Can Price stay healthy? If he gets hurt, that's when you start to wonder. But when he's there, this is a tough team, and they keep themselves in every game. Eric, and, and before we wrap this up, I want to get your thought on, is there any team right now or a couple teams that are struggling that you know you just can't quite put your finger on why that's the case, some teams that have disappointed through the first quarter of the year? No, I, I don't want to say I can't put my finger on it, but I it's a, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a shock, but out of the ordinary to see the, uh, the Detroit Red Wings kind of struggling, you know, you're, you're so used to uh, them just, I don't want to say running their division, but, you know, being in the mix, but kind of looking like this year might be their first year missing the playoffs in, I think, 25 years now. Um, what I'm really interested in, in moving forward is the Buffalo Sabres, because they got Jack Eichel back tonight. He scored in his first 10 minutes of the NHL season. He got back from that ankle injury. Mm-hmm. I'm, seeing if, I'm curious to see if he can provide a little spark, you know, and maybe get the Sabres to jump up and knock on the door. Maybe not, probably not make the playoffs, but maybe walk on the door, play spoiler for some teams down the road. In the Metropolitan Division, we were actually talking about, you know, how the three powerhouses, probably one of the biggest disappointments so far is the New York Islanders. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> They're sitting at 7, 10, and 4, 18 points, the lowest point total in the league tied with the Arizona Coyotes. But, I mean, this is a team that made the playoffs last year, and they're just, they've fallen on their face coming out of the gates here. Yeah, and it makes you feel bad for John Tavares. I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. he's particularly playing bad, but this team does not look good. They're having a tough time stopping anybody from scoring. And aside from him, they're not really putting up much as well. I think this is a tough team, and this season is not looking good for the Islanders. Nashville's starting to get better, Eric. We know Minnesota had the hot start. They're se- Nashville's 73 in their last 10. It was a dreadful start for them. So I'm interested to see if they can keep it going and start getting back up to the playoff picture like we predicted a month ago. And the other team that I'm looking at, and I'm not sure, I think they're, they're starting to come back to earth, but the Dallas Stars, they can't stop anybody. I mean, they're on the outside looking at the playoff picture, but they are getting scored on at a rapid pace. They still haven't addressed their goaltending issue that plagued them all last year, all through the playoffs. Yeah, that's been their Achilles heel for what seems like forever. It's just, they've always had this high-flying offense, but you look back and it's, they're just, there goes another puck in your net. So even throughout the playoffs, you know, they try to do the, the whole the one-two goalies, not really have a starter alternate. It's really backfired. You know, they're, they're sitting at a minus-18 goal differential. They have 79 goals against, which I think is the most in the league, if I'm correct. Philadelphia has 80, but... They're right up there with the most goals against. So, I mean, you can score as many goals as you want with players like, you know, Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, stuff like that. But if you're letting in more, you're going to lose. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if they ever do address this. But it, it's not something that goes away. Bad goaltending will stick with you. That was something we're going to have to monitor. This next month's going to be pretty exciting. We'll see teams start to iron out their playoff positioning and see which teams can make their push. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining the show. Before I let you go... I think we can agree on one other thing, too, and that the best thing that we saw all season was the Craig Anderson game when he came back from his you know personal issues with his wife battling cancer. Oh, yeah. That was, I mean, that's as good as it gets in sports, and I, neither of us are, are necessarily Senators fan, but that's a guy we're all in the hockey community is all rooting for. Oh, yeah, definitely. What, what the NHL does with hockey fights cancer is, is really amazing. Um, I mean, myself, I lost my father to cancer, that story definitely hit home with me watching watching him go out and watching just the reception that he got in a, in a visiting arena, you know, and then the fact that the fans respected him and knew what he did and they stood out and gave him an ovation and watching him kind of just get embraced by the team after after getting such horrible news, him being able to do that for not only himself but his wife, you know, I'm sure she was watching it, was really heartwarming. It's probably going to be one of the top moments in the NHL or just in, in general in, in life this year. Yeah, it was it was something to see. Uh, it's you root for guys like that. He's got one of the best reputations around the league, and to see all the teams, all the Twitter handles, all the support from around the league, 
and that team rally around him. You knew his teammates were were talking to themselves, saying, "We're gonna we're gonna pick this up. We're gonna carry the load." And, and he had a shutout. It, it couldn't have been written any better if it was a movie script. So something to watch for sure. Well, Eric Roberts, thanks for joining the show. Appreciate you coming on and talking hockey. We'll get you back uh, shortly. You know, as the season progresses. Awesome. Thanks for having me, man. Anytime. Big thanks to both George Pinozzi and Eric Roberts for coming on the Money Mitch Effect and talking sports. I want to thank everybody out there for listening. You can find the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play by just searching Money Mitch Effect into your search bar, and it will undoubtedly pop up. You can follow me at Twitter, MoneyMitchM21, for sports takes and much more. Big week coming up. More college football and NFL talk this Friday as we look ahead to more games, more sports. A lot to discuss there. And yeah, we're just moving right through. November was a great month. I thank everybody for listening and helping this podcast grow. One listen at a time. It's only going to get better from here. And that is a fact. Mitch Michael signing off. Thank you for listening to The Money Mitch Effect. We'll see you next time.